I'm Greg. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Charlie. I feel blessed to be here tonight. Um, my sobriety date is October 14, 2015, and this is the longest I've been sober since Nixon was in the White House. Um, I grew up in a big Irish Catholic family in an Irish Catholic neighborhood, which meant that there was always lots of booze around everywhere. And, um, you know, when I was growing up, like most kids, I had no concept of what it meant to be an alcoholic, but I'm pretty sure I was one even back then because I drank a hell of a lot more than anybody else in the sixth grade did. Uh, my earliest memories of drinking were before I was even in school. If my father's friends were at the house or if my uncles were there for some kind of get-together, I was the kid that they would always send to get their refills when they wanted another beer. And my payment, my reward for getting it, was always the first couple sips off the top of the can. And even if I never caught a buzz from drinking that back then, I still remember liking it because I was hanging out with the men and I was drinking. That's what men did. And it didn't matter if I was four or five years old. I felt accepted. I felt like I was one of them. And I felt good. And then the summer between fifth and sixth grade, when I was 11, my older brothers started getting me drunk, letting me hang out with them and their friends because they thought I was hysterical when I was drunk. And again, I remember loving it because I was hanging out with the older kids. I was hanging out with the cool kids. And I was drinking. That's what the cool kids did. And again, I felt accepted. You know, I felt like I was one of them. And I know that's not how they saw me. But that didn't make any difference because it was how I felt. It was how the booze made me feel. It made me feel good about myself. It made me feel confident. And I would have drank every single day to get that feeling if I could have because I wasn't used to it. Um, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of abuse. Physical, mental, verbal. Even if you weren't the one who was catching the beating, there was still that constant, ever-present fear that you could be next at any moment. It all depended on my father's mood, you know. Something he'd let slide one day would send him over the edge the next, and you never knew, so you were always walking on eggshells. And to this day, I can't distinguish one beating from another, but I can still vividly recall every insult, put down, sarcastic comment, everything that was ever said to remind you that you were a screwed up, worthless piece of crap who couldn't do anything right. And when I was drinking, all that shit just went away, and I loved it. Of course, it didn't take long for my older brothers and their friends to get bored with me, and they stopped letting me hang out with them. So uh, once they cut off my supply of alcohol, I did what I thought was the next best thing at the time, and I started hanging out with kids that smoked pot and did drugs. And even though alcohol was always my drug of choice, even back then, I very quickly got the reputation for being the crazy kid who would take three times as much of anything as anybody else, take anything you gave him, any amount, any combination. And I remember people asking me, you know, don't you ever worry about killing yourself? And the fact of the matter was I didn't care. Because I hated myself and I hated my life and I didn't have the balls to end my life intentionally, but if I did something accidental to end it, oh well, I didn't give a shit. And that was pretty much how I went on until I joined the Marine Corps a month after my 18th birthday. And that was when my drinking really escalated, but I didn't realize how bad I was getting at the time. It seemed normal because everybody around me was doing the same thing. Everyone was always drinking, everyone was always partying, that's what Marines did. And again, I felt accepted. I felt like one of them. Because there was always that social component to my drinking. I was always drinking to fit in. I didn't like myself when I was sober. I didn't think anybody else could like me either. Once I got a buzz on, got a few beers in me, started to feel good about myself, then I became the class clown, the court jester, you know, the life of the party. And I hid my anxiety and my fears and my self-loathing behind booze and humor. And... uh yeah, drinking on a daily basis pretty much started in the military. And uh, I got out after four years, 
kept on partying, kept on drinking. Uh, once in a while, I'd quit just to see if I could do it. And uh, once I proved to myself that I had it under control, I'd go out to have a couple beers, wake up the next morning, you know, still dressed in my clothes, 18 bucks worth of quarters in my pocket, not even knowing how I got home. And uh, I had family, friends, coworkers that were concerned with how much drinking I was doing. So I went to my first AA meeting back in 1992, and I went for all the wrong reasons. I went with the worst possible attitude I could have had. I was just going to get people off my back, everybody that was worried about all the stuff, I, you know, how much drinking I was doing. So I told them, I said, if I go check this out, see what they have to say, will you leave me alone? And they said, yeah. So I went, and like I said, I had the worst possible attitude because at that point I hadn't had any repercussions from my drinking yet. And I go to this meeting, and I'm listening to people talking about multiple divorces, multiple job losses, multiple arrests, losing their houses, going to prison, sleeping under bridges. And instead of being smart enough to walk out saying, well, maybe I should quit before I got that bad, I walked out thinking, well, if that's what it means to be an alcoholic, then I'm not one of them because none of that stuff's ever happened to me. If I had known about the huge yet that God was going to put at the end of that sentence, I probably still wouldn't have quit because I wouldn't have believed it. I hadn't been beaten down enough yet by my disease. So my drinking continued. Uh, sometimes, like I said, I was a little better. Most of the time I was a lot worse. Uh, it's cost me jobs, friendships, uh, more money than I can calculate. It was never my fault, though. It was never my problems. It was never my drinking. It was always someone was out to get me. Somebody stabbed me in the back, you know. Um, and I met my wife 15 years ago, and we became friends, and... Uh, we're friends for years before we even started dating, and once we started dating, I kind of cut back on the drinking. After we got married, probably about two years into my marriage, my drinking started to escalate again, and she started trying to push me back into AA. And I started to go, but I was only going again to get her off my back, just to make her happy. And I would go sit in my truck until two minutes before the meeting started, and I would go in and I wouldn't talk to anybody. I'd just sit in the corner of the room with my arms folded across my chest, just, you know, in my own head. You guys were all background noise. You all sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. You know, everybody was going, wah, 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 wah. I was out of there ten minutes before the meeting ended. I wasn't interested in hanging out till you guys joined hands like the Who's Down in Whoville and sang Kumbaya or whatever the hell it was you were going to do. So, uh... Sometimes I wouldn't even go to meetings. I'd go to Walmart for an hour and just walk around wasting time because I thought meetings were a waste of time too. But um, as my drinking got worse and worse, I started, uh, I started to realize that I was out of control. And every time I promised my wife that I was going to quit for good, this time I mean it, and it would never take more than a couple of days, I'd be at Walgreens buying a couple of nips, drinking them on my way home asking myself what the hell just happened. Or I'd be at the bar with a coworker and I'd have my third beer down before I start asking myself how the hell did I even get here. And I lost the ability to, to choose. I would wake up every morning and I'd fill a big gulp cup two-thirds of the way with mixer and a third of the way with vodka. And I thought I needed that just to get through my morning. And that would get me through till lunch when I could get some more. And that would get me through till I got out of work. And uh, once I put that first drink in my system, all bets were off. I couldn't, I couldn't stop. No matter how much I wanted to, I just couldn't stop. And I finally hit my bottom on uh, October 13th, 2015. My wife and I had been separated for about five months. I had lost my job again. I was broke. Everything I owned in the world was in a five-foot-by-five-foot five storage unit. 
with room to spare, I might add. And uh, my parents wouldn't talk to me, my kids wouldn't talk to me, and I was waiting to turn myself over to the court to start a four-month prison sentence for my second DUI, which was an aggravated extreme where I blew almost a point three. And in spite of all that, I was still drinking. My last drunk, I probably drank two-fifths of vodka and chased it with four or five steel reserves. And then I got to prison, and uh, I got the stuff out of my system. My head started to clear, the fog started to lift a little bit, and uh, started thinking about how my life had been, where I was, and that was what pretty much when I surrendered. I realized I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. This is... It's not a life, it's just an existence. And I started going back to AA while I was in prison. And I started going because I wanted to go, not because my wife wanted me to go, not because my boss required it, not because anybody else wanted me to go, not because the court told me, to, told me to go, but because I wanted to go. And uh, started working on the first three steps, which, I mean, I never even thought about doing those for the five years that I was in and out. And I didn't want to admit that I was powerless. You know, I was an intelligent, rational person. I had, been, I had done time in the military, in the Marine Corps. I, I didn't want to feel, admit that I was powerless to anything. But then when I started thinking about all the times that I tried to quit, couldn't do it, all the times I tried to control what was going on around me, and when I'd get frustrated because I couldn't, I would turn to drinking. Um, and that was when I realized, you know, I just... There's nothing I can do. I can't, if I ever take that second, that, that first drink, um, that powerlessness is going to kick back in again, and I'm not going to be able to stop again. And then uh, second step, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I didn't want to do that one either. I didn't think I needed to. For me to come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, that meant first I had to admit that I needed to be restored to sanity in the first place, and I didn't think I had to. Because uh, I didn't think I was insane. This warped, twisted, screwed up alcoholic brain was able to rationalize all the stuff that I was doing while I was drinking. I was able to justify it to myself. It all made sense. When I got to prison and uh, started thinking about some of the stuff that I did while I was drinking, some of the stuff I did in order to drink, and I started asking myself, how could you ever see that as normal behavior? How could that ever seem sane to you? You know, how could you ever rationalize that? I mean, sane people don't do that. Sane people don't steal money from their kids so they can go buy four nips for breakfast. You know, sane people don't get on a bicycle at 11 o'clock at night, ride eight miles each way in a downpour, just to get a fifth so they'll have it in the morning and then drink it before they even go to bed. Sane people don't go into the supermarket with a limited budget and tell themselves, you know what, I haven't had any fruits or vegetables for a while, maybe I'll get the blueberry-flavored steel reserve. You know, sane people don't think like that. So I finally came to believe that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity because I knew I was insane. You know, they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And even if you took all the crazy stuff I did in order to drink, all the crazy stuff I did while I was drinking and just forgot about all that, just the sheer number of times I get a month or two months of sobriety and tell myself, yeah, this time you got to figure it out. This time you got it under control. This time you got a handle on it. This time won't be like all those other times, which 30 years of experience has taught me is pure bullshit. But I would listen to that voice, and I'd go back out, and I'd pick back up, and I'd wind up digging my way right back down into that hole. And just the number of times I did that, 
basically convince me that I'm batshit nuts, you know. Um, and I love the way they say that could restore me to sanity, not would. Because, you know, if it said would, then uh, I'd kind of get the feeling that, you know, God was going to throw some kind of switch and all of a sudden I'd be better, like, you know, like that. And that's not how it works. Um, but I had to believe that God could restore me to sanity because I knew I couldn't do it myself. I can't, I can't fix a screwed up brain with a fixed screwed up brain, you know. Um, the first time I realized, the first time I honestly truly believed that he would restore me to sanity, after I got out of prison, I got about six months sober, and uh, the only job I was able to get was working as a landscape, uh, uh, just a worker on a landscape crew. We worked over in Verado. We had a huge HOA property that we took care of. And my wife and family were going out of town. And my wife was terrified that I was going to go back out while they were gone. And to be honest, so was I, because I knew how easy it was for me to slip. I had done it so many times before. And every day after lunch, we'd go out and we'd find a, an area that looked like crap and we'd do whatever we needed to do to fix it. So we came to one street. It was a real windy day, 60-mile-an-hour gust. The first street we came to looked like shit. But my boss kept driving. Second Street, same thing, looked like crap, but he kept driving. And that happened over and over again, and he finally stopped. And the first thing we'd do when we got to an area was we would put cones at either end of the road, and he told me to grab some cones and put them at the end of the street, which basically 100 yards up this hill. And I was walking up the hill with the cones, and the whole way I was trudging up this hill, I was asking God, give me the sign that I'm going to be okay, any kind of sign, something I can tell my wife so she can not worry about me while she's gone. So I put a cone on one side of the road and I crossed the street and I went to put the other cone down and when I went to put it down, there was a piece of paper on the ground. In fact, it was this piece of paper right here. It's a card with the Alcoholics Anonymous third step prayer on it. I've had people try to convince me that that was coincidence. I was like, you're not going to convince me of that in a million years. You know, my boss could have told, he could have stopped at a dozen different streets. He could have sent six other guys to the top of that hill. This card could have blown a million different places. For that card to be where it was when I needed to find it, that wasn't coincidence. That was God telling me, I'm listening and I hear you. That was God telling me, you're not going to slip because I'm going to give you strength. It was God telling me, you're not going to pick up and go back to that way of life because i got something better in store for you. And uh, every time I feel like things aren't going my way or I feel myself getting stressed out, I take out this card and I look at it and it reminds me that everything that's going on around me is part of his plan, just like that card being there that day. And uh, that helps me get through my day. And uh, I finish working on the rest of the steps. And I, what I like to tell people that are newcomers that haven't done the steps, I like to compare it to, I don't know if you've ever been camping, like tent camping in really shitty weather. You know, when you leave, you, that whole ride home, you're cold, you're wet, you're tired, you're miserable. Nobody gets home from a weekend like that and stays in those wet clothes and says, well, at least I'm not out in the rain anymore. That's good enough for me, you know. <laughs> when I quit, well, the first five years that I tried to quit and I didn't do the steps, every time I tried to quit, I was staying in those cold, wet clothes, you know. And I was thinking, well, I'm not drinking. At least that's good enough. And it wasn't until I did the steps that I actually got better. And I tell new people that, you know, if you think the difference from between before and after that shower is something, that's nothing compared to how you feel after the steps because 
this isn't a this isn't a program about not drinking. This is a program about developing a way of life where you feel like you don't have to drink. You don't need to drink. You don't want to drink. And tonight, I feel blessed to be here because I don't want to drink. And that's all I got. Thank you. Thank you.